welcome to the preaching ministry podcast of Mount Pisgah Baptist Church in Easley, South Carolina. Our goal is to exalt the Savior, evangelize the sinner, and encourage the saint through faithful exposition of God's Word. I want to ask the worship team to begin making their way down. Would you remain standing while they go down? Because I want to just share a quick story with you. It's not part of my sermon, but I believe it may be what's on the Lord's heart and mind. I was raised in a wonderful Christian home, but in a denomination that taught that you could lose your salvation if you didn't act good enough and behave righteously enough to maintain and keep up your part of the bargain. When my granny Stone passed away... There was a lady that gathered up my, cornered up my papa in the corner of the kitchen there at the house where she had passed. My granny had only been in the Lord's presence for four or five minutes when this well-intentioned sister cornered up my papa and said, Sister Juanita's gone to her reward, and if we have any hope to see her again, we're going to have to strive and strive and strive and strive and hope somehow we do enough to make it in. It was a time of death, and Grief for our family, that wasn't the time for me to have a preaching session in the kitchen. But sitting on the couch, I just quietly began to hum a great old Baptist hymn. My faith has found a resting place, not in device nor creed. I trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. And I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. It is done, paid in full with an all-sufficient merit of Jesus Christ that I now have through him. Would you give the Lord thanks and praise this morning? As you're being seated, I would invite you to turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of 1 Kings chapter 18, 1 Kings Chapter 18, while you're finding that passage, I want to say it is a privilege to see special friends and guests. I've had members of my church from Blackshear in both services this morning, uh, some of them who backslid and came to study nearby at a little school up the road, and uh, some that are visiting family this weekend came to hear some good preaching, found out that I was here instead. Brother Chad, thank you for the invitation to be here as part of this 2023 Bible conference. And I'm blessed beyond measure to be a part of what God is doing in these days. There is no church outside of my own that I love, respect, and pray for more regularly than the Mount Pisgah Baptist Church. I'm blessed to preach in a lot of different places. And if this is your church home, I want you to sit up straight and listen to me carefully. What happens here each and every week is not happening in most churches across this country. You are blessed beyond measure to be a part of what God is doing in these days. And if I were you, I would not miss any single service of this week's Bible conference. Pastor Chad has brought some great preachers in for the rest of the week. It's uphill. From here, you've got Dr. Ron Lynch, you've got Dr. Stephen Rummage, Pastor Brad Waters. None of them are strangers to this congregation, but if you are newer to Mount Pisgah, you may not be as familiar with them as others, and I'm just going to tell you, they are anointed men of God, and you're going to be blessed and encouraged, strengthened and challenged each and every evening, and who knows, but what God really wants to do in your heart, your life, your family. Dad, 
the life of one of your teenagers. Mom, that little boy or that little girl that you're trying to raise to know the Lord, who knows but what Monday night or Tuesday night might be the night that's on God's calendar to really touch their life in a way. Who knows but what in one of the services later this week, God is gonna bring your prodigal home. Who knows but what later this week, God may restore your marriage. You say, my marriage is not in trouble. It may be in more trouble than you realize, but God may do a work of grace and you never even know the danger that you avoided. So I want to encourage you. You be in your place, your spot with your Bible and your heart open to have what God wants to do uh, accomplished in your life this week. Well, this morning, I'm well aware that our pastor has just preached from 1 Kings chapter 18, but this morning and this evening, I want to pick up where he left off last week. He, he spoke to you from 1 Kings 18 about then the fire fell. And if you were here last Lord's Day, you know the focus was basically what had to happen before the fire of God fell at the top of Mount Carmel. Today, I want us to examine what happens when the fire falls. And then tonight, you be back in your place. We're going to examine chapter 19 and study what we can expect to happen after the fire falls. And as a little preview, it's not all sunshine and roses. There are some things we need to be ready for when God begins to move. Hey, the devil's not gonna take it lying down. We need to be ready to receive what God wants to send when the fire falls and be ready to fight the fight of faith after the fire falls. 1 Kings 18, I'm going to begin reading in the 38th verse. I'm reading from the King James Bible. You may swipe over to that on your smart device. And if you don't mind, if you're able, let's stand together to honor the reading of God's inspired, infallible, and inerrant book. 1 Kings 18, I'm beginning in verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, not some of them, but all of them, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is the God, the Lord, he is the God. And Elijah said unto them, Take the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they took them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. And Elijah said unto Ahab, Get thee up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of abundance of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, and he cast himself down upon the earth and put his face between his knees." And said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, there's nothing. And he said, go again, seven times. And it came to pass at the seventh time that the servant said, behold, there ariseth a little cloud out of the sea, like a man's hand. And he said, go up and say to Ahab, prepare thy chariot and get thee down, that the rain stop thee not. And it came to pass in the meanwhile that the heaven was black with clouds and wind and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah and he girded up his loins and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Father, would you bless now the reading of your perfect word. As our Bibles have been opened, may our hearts, minds, and ears now be open to receive what you would share with this congregation to the end that every life would be strengthened, that this congregation would be more founded, 
and that Jesus would be preeminently exalted. We make our prayer in Christ's name, and God's people together said amen. God bless you, and you may be seated. The average church in America has learned how to operate in the strength of the flesh and the power of our own experience. Even in some churches that are more lively, if you look beneath the surface with any spiritual discernment, it's a choreographed clap. It's a pre-planned shout. It is as well rehearsed, planned, and choreographed as a high school marching band doing the halftime show on Friday night. We have learned how to operate without the help of heaven and the fire of God. Meanwhile, the church that Christ demands and that we desire is empowered by a wind that blows from another world. It is strengthened by power that comes from God alone. So our prayer in these days of Bible conference, in these days of a building program, in these days of revival at Mount Pisgah, ought to be, oh God, let the fire of heaven fall. Well, what should we expect when the fire falls? There will be evidence that God has been at work. For example, if I were to tell you that last night an F5 tornado ripped through downtown Easley, South Carolina, if you didn't come through there this morning, you head back after church, there's some things you would reasonably expect to see. Down power lines, perhaps some trees that are uprooted, windows that are broken, maybe even cars overturned, shingles that are missing. And if you walk through and it looks as pristine as could be, you would say, I don't know what happened, but it wasn't an F5 tornado. Similarly, if the fire of God really falls and you have to ask if it fell, it didn't. Because when it falls, where it falls, there will be evidence of the handiwork of God. Now, we need to be careful and cautious when we talk about the fire of God falling because typically in the Word of God, when the fire falls, it's not a good thing and you don't want to be anywhere around. The fire of God fell in Genesis 19 against Sodom and Gomorrah. In Exodus 9 and again in Exodus 19, the fire of God fell as judgment against Egypt just before the exodus out of bondage. In the Old Testament, we read that two priests named Nadab and Abihu dared to offer what the Bible calls strange fire on the altar of God. And since they gave fire to God, God gave some fire in return, turned them into Old Testament crispy critters, and they toted their ashes outside the camp in their pockets. There are times you don't want to be anywhere around the fire of God falling. But in Acts chapter 2, when the faithful saints were gathered in the upper room in Acts you, you remember on the day of Pentecost that the, the power of the Holy Ghost fell and sat down upon them as cloven tongues of what? Fire. The fire of God fell. And so it was in the days of Elijah that the fire of God came as an attestation to the true identity of the one true God. And I just want to say this morning, oh, that something of that nature would happen at the 2023 Bible Conference at the Mount Pisgah Baptist Church. Our text says, then the fire of the Lord fell. And these verses tell us not only what had to happen before the fire fell, it tells us what happened because the fire fell. And I want to submit four of them for your consideration, four things that will happen when the fire falls. Number one, there will be divine transformation. Bottom line, things change when the fire of God falls. 
Notice in our text back in verse 38, and the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the dust, and even licked up the water that was in the trench. Things were not the same after the fire fell as they were before the fire fell. You remember the story? Pastor reminded us of it last week that Elijah calls together all the nation of Israel and the prophets of Baal, hundreds of these false prophets of a false god. He builds an altar, puts the wood and the sacrifice and barrel after barrel after barrel of the most precious commodity they had at the time, namely water, because they were in a season of drought. And then Elijah says, let the God who answers by fire prove himself to be the one true God. And all the people said... We think that's a good idea. You go back to verse 24, that little duel sounded pleasing to the people. Listen, the people of God said, whichever God answers by fire, be it Baal or Jehovah, that's the God we will serve. But moments later, when the fire of God fell, everything about the altar, including the altar itself, is consumed by the very power and fire of God and the people are now on their faces and they are declaring the Lord he is the God I'm talking about this wishy-washy bunch that moments ago had a wet thumb stuck into the wind deciding which way they would go and which way they would turn now they're prostrate on their faces saying the Lord God of heaven he is oh choir I said he is The God, the Lord, he is the God. In simple South Georgia terms, when God shows up, things change. Because whether you're talking about physical fire or spiritual fire, it warms, it illuminates, it purifies, it transforms. I heard about a church plant, a new church that Bought an old abandoned juke joint. Do you know what a juke joint is in the Piedmont area of South Carolina? In South Georgia, we call it a pool hall, a beer joint. They bought this old abandoned bar, and they were going to renovate it to have their church services in there. They didn't know that the bar owner left his pet parrot up in the rafters of that old juke joint. So they came in, they did some work, and on the day they were going to start having church, the pastor showed up about an hour or so before church, unlocked the doors, and that old parrot started squawking, rah, new owner, new owner. A little while later, the band showed up for their sound check and rehearsal. That old parrot started squawking, rah, rah, new band, new band. At 10.30, the crowd showed up, and the parrot started squawking, rah, rah, same crowd, same crowd, same crowd. (laughs) Friends, as simply as I know how to say it, it won't be that way when the fire of God falls. Sir, you can't keep cussing like you did before when the fire of God falls. You can't neglect your wife like you used to. Ma'am, you can't disrespect and dishonor your husband. Church member, you can't lay out of church for little to no reason at all, not when the fire of God falls. You used to be able to walk past these offering boxes or see the giving tab on your website, and it didn't bother you that you robbed from God in tithes and offerings. But I'm telling you, when the fire of God falls, stuff changes and life is transformed. Couples that were headed to divorce court head down to the altar instead, 
and the man falls back in love with his wife and the wife falls back in love with her husband and somebody says, what in the world happened? I can't explain it except I was in the presence of God and I was transformed by touch from another world. God did something in my life that cannot be explained with human intellect. It cannot be explained with earthly wisdom. God's fiery work of revival brings about divine transformation. Nobody here but us this morning, so could I ask you a question? Do you have anything in your life you'd like to see God change? Today's preacher does. With four kids ranging from ages 11 to 20, there's never a day in my life, Brother Jeremy, that I don't have something going on that only God can do. A text from daddy won't fix it. A phone call from mama won't change it. But I need God to show up and do something that can only be explained as the power of Almighty God. And when the fire of God falls, the discouraged will be encouraged. The weak will be strengthened. The hurting will be comforted. The inactive will be inactive. I mean, there'll be somebody that only comes about every other Sunday morning. You look across the church and you see him on a Tuesday night at a Bible conference. What happened with him? The fire of God fell on his life. Amen. And, and things have been changed. The sick will be healed. The lost will be saved. The bound will be set free. And some old sourpuss that looks like they've got a face so long they could suck golf balls out of a gopher hole, you'll look across the sanctuary. They'll have their hands lifted in praise to God. You say, what in the world happened to him? I'll tell you what happened. He came in this place shackled by a heavy burden, neath a load of guilt and shame. But then the blessed hand of Jesus touched him, and now he is no longer the same. That happens beloved, when the fire falls, there will be divine transformation. Secondly, we see now in verse 39, when the fire falls, there will be a dynamic adoration. There's a divine transformation. There's dynamic adoration. We get evidence this wasn't a Baptist crowd in verse 39, because when all the people saw it, they didn't act like the church of the frozen chosen. They didn't act like they were weaned on persimmon juice and baptized in pickles. The Bible says in verse 39, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. In other words, when the fire falls, it will not only show up in our private life, it'll show up in our public worship. You'll be able to tell when you walk in the door. From the first note till the final amen, you'll say, God's on that place. And God's on those people. Now, I've got to confess to you. I, I was raised in a Pentecostal church. He said, I knew it, Ethel. I told you that boy wasn't a Baptist. <laughs> I was raised in a Pentecostal church, and when I was in high school, I, I, out of conviction and study of the Word of God, left that denomination and became a Baptist. I did not do that because Baptists are typically known for our spirit-filled, exuberant, and excited worship. I preach in a lot of places where amens are as scarce as hen's teeth. And you couldn't get a hallelujah or a motion out of some people if you lit their underwear on fire. You understand what I'm saying? 
In some churches, you light the deacon's britches on fire, they'll die of third-degree burns before they do anything about it. I recognize that your shout may not sound like my shout. Your clap may not look like my clap. Your song may not sound exactly like my song, but when the fire of God falls, you won't come to church looking like you ran over your pet dog backing out of the driveway or that you need a half a case of Red Bull to stay awake while Pastor Chad is trying to preach the word. Please understand, I'm not talking about false fire. I'm not talking about fleshly fire. I'm not talking about strange fire falling. But listen, friend, I can already tell about this congregation, same thing that's true of mine. Our great danger is not that we're on the verge of running the aisles and swinging from chandeliers we don't even have. Our great danger is we will become so accustomed to, comfortable with, and insensitive to the work of the Holy Spirit that we will yawn in the face of God and have an attitude that is lukewarm and lackadaisical and lethargic. We need to have a worship service that is marked by a dynamic adoration. I had not planned to say this, but while I'm in the neighborhood, can I pay a quick visit and share with you what happens or fails to happen? When you as a congregation don't respond visibly and verbally in the music or in the preaching of the word, for one thing, when the pastor, and I'm just bearing my soul for a moment, Brother Chad, because in my church, sometimes I preach, I preach like you preach. I want to, I want to preach it bold and cut it straight. I want to say it where there's no equivocation. Nobody leaves wondering what I was trying to say. And sometimes when I preach something that is cutting against the grain of the culture in which we have been immersed, it is as quiet as 3 a.m. in downtown Piedmont. You understand what I'm saying? I'm talking about dead as dead can be. And I wonder, am I the only one in the room that believes that's what the book says? So when we don't respond verbally and visibly in the service, it gives visitors the impression that that really ain't what this church believes. That he may believe that, but we don't believe that. It also, silence gives your young people the impression that that's just something the older generation believes. I remember years ago, back when we were still listening to cassette tapes, did I just date myself? Students, that was this little thing about this big that you, you listen to a cassette tape of Dr. Jerry Vines preaching then as the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Jacksonville, Florida. He made a simple statement. And Dr. Vines is not one to yell very much. He doesn't get very loud when he preaches, but just with a common statesman-like voice, said to all of the unmarried in the room that God's will for your life is sexual purity prior to marriage, sexual fidelity within after marriage, and sexual intimacy within marriage. And he said it about like that, and the church broke out into applause. And here's what I thought. That's a church house full of singles that realize the preacher isn't the only one in the room that thinks that's the word of God. Amen. Because when the fire of God falls, we begin to respond to what God is doing. I'll never forget several years ago, I was invited to preach a revival in my little community. And the week before the revival, the pastor wanted to take me to lunch to discuss what was going on in the church and what he was praying would happen in the revival. And we got to talking about worship music. And he let me know, Brother Chad, they were going to be singing out of the old-fashioned shape note Stamps Baxter hymnal. 
He said he wasn't afraid of the newer forms of music, but he wanted to be sure that his church did not go over the deep end into the charismatic movement. Well, I've got good news for him, having preached in his church Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, and Thursday night. They ain't nowhere near going over the deep end into the charismatic movement. I mean, they're in theological Kansas, brother. They ain't a cliff around anywhere. When the choir came out, I smelled mothballs wafting from the choir robes. I think the music minister was a bivocational funeral director. Embalming fluid was coursing through his veins, and I mean a dead choir sang dead songs to a dead congregation, supposedly about a living Lord, and I just stopped by to tell you, something's wrong with that. There ought to be a hallelujah in the house of God. There ought to be a glory to Jesus in the house of God. Somebody ought to say, bless the Lord and glory to his name. The same Bible that says, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved, also says, clap your hands, all ye people, and shout unto God with a voice of triumph. The same Bible that says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved, also says, lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. You say, well, I'm just not real expressive, Brother Mike. Oh, yes, you are. We just got to be talking about something that excites you. The same little old lady that says, I don't get real expressive. You let your husband do something around the house that ticks you off. Get a bee in your bonnet or a burr in your saddle. I'm telling you, you'll be so expressive. Folks will think you're on your way to a Benny Hinn crusade. The same deacon that says we ought to tone it down in the house of God. Why, next Saturday you'll have half your face painted orange and the other half of your face painted purple down on the 50-yard line yelling, blood makes the grass grow. Blood makes the grass grow. And come in the house of God and act like you're in need of a worming when the choir sings and the preacher preaches. It won't be like that, friend, when the fire of God falls. Some years ago, a man in our church came to tell me a story. He'd been inviting one of his coworkers to come and visit our church. He was a member of a dead old church, and so he was inviting him to come to Emmanuel. And his, his, his coworker came and said, look at me, look at me. I'm practicing coming to Emmanuel. Somebody might say, I'm practicing coming to Mount Pisgah. And my member looked at him and said, look at me, look at me. I'm practicing going to church with you. I don't mean to offend anybody, but if the crowd that thinks they can lose their salvation believes they've got something to shout about, then those of us that know that we've been washed in the blood and sealed by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ ought to be able to lift our voice, lift our hands, and lift our shout unto God in worship. If anybody's got a reason to shout, it ought to be those of us who know that I cried to the Lord and he heard my cry and inclined his ear to me, reached down in grace and lifted me up out of the miry clay. Hey, set my feet on a rock, gave me a firm place to stand. And yes, he did put a new song in my mouth. And if he put a song in my mouth, bless God, I'm gonna sing it when I come to the house of God. And when the fire of God falls, there will be a divine transformation. There will be dynamic adoration. The shouting and clapping are about to stop because number three, there will be a distinct separation. Now, separation is a word that's not even in the 
dictionary or the glossary of most Baptist churches these days. I know that it's in the lexicon of the Mount Pisgah Baptist Church. I know that I'm plowing ground that's regularly plowed in this church because of the faithful preaching of your pastor. In most congregations these days, if you start talking about holiness and separation, you'll be called legalistic, fundamentalist, ultra-conservative, backwood, bigoted, hateful, narrow-minded. But might I remind you that in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 6, quoting from the Old Testament, your New Testament still says, come out from among them and be ye separate, says the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. Look in your Bible at our next verse, verse 40. And Elijah said unto them, take the prophets of Baal and let none of them escape. That sounds pretty intolerant, doesn't it? And they took them and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. Well, so much for the little soft-talking, mealy-mouthed, sissified preacher who's got a spaghetti noodle for a spine and lace on a spiritual britches. No, Elijah apparently had a saw log for a backbone and he had a sword and he knew how to use it. And I'm not talking about the sword of the spirit, the word of God. I'm talking about a literal sword with which he killed the prophets of Baal. He says to a crowd, listen to me now, that moments earlier was running with the prophets of Baal, worshiping with the prophets of Baal, hanging out with the prophets of Baal, when they had a bell worshiping service, this crowd sang the songs and performed the liturgies. But now that the fire of God has fallen, the people of God go and get the prophets of Baal and put them to death. For them, separation was not a stale doctrinal issue that they studied in a grow group. For them, separation was not an abstract theory. It wasn't just a doctrinal sermon that they would nod and perhaps clap if you got animated enough about it. For them, it got down into the bloody shoe leather of killing the prophets of Baal. Now, most Christians don't mind preaching in the abstract. Most Christians will shout you down in the theoretical, the vague, the nameless, and the nebulous. But when you get specific and practical, that's when the fur begins to fly in most of our churches. Because you see, when the fire of revival really falls, there are some practices that are going to have to be stopped, and you're going to have to stop them. You're going to have to cut it out, dry it up, and quit it. There's some relationships that are going to have to be altered, if not completely severed. And those relationships are not nameless. They've got names and faces and addresses and cell phone numbers. When the fire of God falls, there are some disciplines that are going to have to be renewed Everyone in this room, at least the overwhelming majority, 
would say amen to the idea of being a more faithful disciple of Jesus. Everyone would say amen to the nebulous idea of being a more committed church member until I ask you to check your tithe and offering record. That's starting to get specific. Until I ask you to check your attendance record for grow groups in your church that your pastor talks about and preaches about and invites you to each and every week. You see, when you start getting specific, that's when we're able to measure our fidelity to Christ. And when genuine revival fire falls, there will be a distinct separation. It is said that in the great Welsh revival, the police officers had to be laid off because the crime rate plummeted so steeply. It is said that ladies of the evening had to get new jobs for her clientele dropped off. It is even reported that mules who worked the mines had to be retrained because they had their whole existence. They had responded to commands that were filled with vulgarity and profanity and filthy words. And now the mule's owner wasn't talking that way anymore and they didn't know how to act or to respond. Now I recognize probably no one in this room today needs to stop bank robbing, prostituting, or cussing out your mule. But some of God's people need to go home and clean out the refrigerator. You ain't got to help me. I brought my own witness because my Bible still says in Proverbs 20 verse 1 that wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. You say, well, I'm not drunk. You're also not very smart. If revival fire falls, there may be some in here that need to go home and cancel some accounts and subscriptions. Now, I'm not into cancel culture as the woke agenda of the world defines it, but I think some of us could benefit from a cancel culture of separation to cancel that Netflix account because you can't handle it. Nothing wrong with the account itself except the fact you can't handle and honor God with it. To cancel some online subscriptions, to cancel some, some of you need to cancel some appointments that you've got later this week. There's some things that you've just got to cut off and have nothing more to do with. May I remind you of Elijah's question at the top of Mount Carmel? How long will you halt between two opinions? Now, that's an old English way of saying, how long are you going to be so wishy-washy? How long are you going to be such a compromiser? How long are you going to sit on a fence and straddle the fence? How long are you going to live one way on Sunday and Wednesday night and a different way the rest of the week? How long are you going to dress one way on Sunday and another way during the week? How long are you going to tell one kind of joke in the grow group and another kind of joke in the break room? How long are you going to watch David Jeremiah in a men's Bible study on a Tuesday night, but watch something totally different with your iPhone or your iPad where you're in a hotel room by yourself? How long are you going to be in and out and off and on and up and down, hot and cold? How long until you really decide what you're going to do, where you're going to stand, and how you're going to live? It is logical to me for an unbeliever to give Jesus no place at all. Lost people act lost because they're lost. It's logical to me 
for an unbeliever to give Jesus no place. It's logical to me for a believer to give Jesus first place. But what is illogical for me for a professing believer to be wishy-washy? If the message of Jesus is true, and it is, he deserves everything. In fact, if you think about it logically, the only thing that Jesus could not possibly deserve, I'm talking about based on his claims of being God come in the flesh. The only thing that Jesus could never deserve is something. He either deserves everything or he doesn't deserve anything because either what he said is true and he deserves everything or what he says is a lie and he doesn't deserve anything at all. If he's not worthy of being a regular church attender, then he's not worthy of the three or four times a year that you might drop in and out. If he's not worthy of faithfully supporting this generation's campaign as sacrificially and, and, and digging deep as we can possibly go, then he's not worthy of the few dollar bills that we toss in. It's a waste of money. And Elijah wants to know, how long are you going to live this way without being completely separated and sold out unto God. At a revival several years ago, not too far from here, in fact, I preached on Sunday night and a man came out in the handshaking line and he said to his pastor, he wasn't talking to me, but I was standing right there next to him. He said, preacher, we'll see you Tuesday night and Wednesday night. We won't be back tomorrow night because Junior's got a t-ball game. Then he said, well, we might see you tomorrow night because it's forecast for rain. And if the t-ball game gets rained out, we'll be at church tomorrow night. So if it rains, you'll see us tomorrow. If, if, it, if it doesn't rain, we'll see you Tuesday night and Wednesday night. Now, I didn't say anything. What in my place. But I've been carrying this story around for nearly a decade. Can I just share it with you, what I wanted to say? I wanted to say, don't waste your time coming back Tuesday. In fact, don't waste your time coming back tomorrow night. I didn't say that. I believe the man should have come back. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But I thought to myself, you've just told your creator he's no higher a priority to you than second place right after a rained out t-ball game. Now, if that kind of preaching bothers you, I want all the married women in the room to sit up straight and listen to this illustration. I want you to imagine that tomorrow afternoon at five o'clock, it's quitting time and your husband calls you from work and you can tell by the sound of his voice, you've been married to him long enough, you, you, you hear it in his voice. You can see a sparkle in his eye even over the telephone. He's got romance on his mind. And he says, honey, I would really love some romance this evening and I just wanted to let you know I may be a little late. I'm gonna stop by Sally's house and see if she's available. And if she's not home, I'm going to go over to Jessica's house. But if she's not available, I'm going to stop by Joanne's house. But now if none of them are available, I'll be home by about 6.15. Light some candles and get out the Kenny G CD. I'm not trying to be crude, but ma'am, if there's anything about you at all, his stuff will be in a box out by the mailbox when he gets home. I'm not sitting in second place, third place, sir, fourth, not, not on something like that, no, sir. 
I'll either be first place, hey, only place, or don't come home with loving on your mind. And if I reverse that illustration, there's not a man in this room that would accept that kind of phone call from his wife. That if Bill isn't available and George isn't available and Fred isn't available, then honey, I'll see you in about an hour and a half. How do we think God will respond when we tell him we'll be committed to him if these other things fall through? Some years ago, I got a phone call from a member of our church wanting to give me some tickets to the Georgia-Kentucky game. Neither team was really doing well that year. It was a non-consequential game, but it was an event for our family to get to go. And I'm talking about had box seats. Y'all know what I mean when I say the seats where people who make a whole lot more money than a Baptist preacher sit. He said, I got six tickets for you, you and your wife and your four kids. Everything's covered, and I'd love for you to go. I said, man, thank you, we will go. I, I, I barely got off the phone with him when I remembered, I've got a wedding Saturday at the church at 11 o'clock. There's an old widow lady marrying an old widower. They're both pushing 75, 80 years old. There ain't going to be eight or 10 people there, just, you know, a few their kids and stuff like that. They just want to get married at the church. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make my plans to go up to Athens and watch the dogs play. And I'm going to call them Friday night. And I'm going to say, you're going to have to find somebody else to officiate your, your service tomorrow. I've got a chance to go watch the dogs play between the hedges. I'm not going to be able to be there. Now, you ladies are looking at me with the stink eye. I did not do that. I did not want to do that. But Brother Chad, part of me wanted to, part of me wanted to just, just feel, what does it feel like to do that just one time? Get a last minute invitation to go somewhere to a ball game, shirk your responsibility at the church house and hit the road and go watch a little football. Where'd y'all go? Y'all were shouting a few minutes ago. When the fire of revival falls, there will be a distinct separation. I'm on to my fourth point with this thought. What would happen for the honor of the Lord if on a Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, and Wednesday night, people driving up and down this road are checking Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, texting their friends, what in the world is going on? Who died? Did you see all the cars at Mount Pisgah? That is a sign of a distinct separation. One more thing and I'm finished. When the fire of God falls, there will be a discerning observation. In verses 41 and following, Elijah said unto Ahab, get up, better eat and get you something to drink. I hear the sound of an abundance of rain. In the verses that follow, Elijah sends his servant to the edge of the hillside to look out toward the sea. He says, look, look for a rain cloud. Six times the unnamed servant comes back and says, there's not a cloud in the sky. Elijah already said, I hear a sound of an abundance of rain. Rain's coming. May I remind you, they've been in a drought for several years. Elijah said, it's about to rain. The servant comes back six times, not a rain cloud in the sky. Elijah said, you better go back and look again. And the servant came back the seventh time and said, 
I was finally able to see way off on the horizon a tiny little cloud. In fact, it was so small, if you held your hand up, you could cover it up and not see. It was about the size of your hand off in the distance. And here's what Elijah said to the servant. Go tell Ahab, you better get your chariot hitched up and get back to the house or your chariot's going to get bogged down in the mud on the way home. And a great rain began to fall. You see, Elijah had tuned in and plugged in to the power of the Holy Spirit. And now he's able to see some things and sense some things and hear some things that he would not otherwise have been able to do. Some of that is positive. You'll have discernment to sense some things that other people don't sense. You say God was up to something. They didn't hear it. They didn't see it. But you'll know it. Or it may be negative. I'm talking about discerning some sinful things in your life that you didn't notice before. Stuff that used to not bother you. Are you listening? Say amen. amen. Stuff that used to not bother you bothers you now. Stuff that used to bother you doesn't bother you now because your discernment has been impacted by the fire of God. I'll not soon forget an evangelist friend of mine now with the Lord. He tells the story of he and his wife receiving a phone call from their adult daughter. She had gone to see a movie. And the phone call, she, kept, she said, Mom, Dad, y'all need to go see this movie. It's wonderful. I know y'all don't go to the movies because of all the stuff that's in the movies. I know that, but there, there's no nudity or sex scenes in this movie. There's, there's no gratuitous violence. There's nothing like that. And I think there, there are three, maybe four cuss words in the whole movie. And the mother asked the adult daughter, how many does it take to bother you? That's a pretty good litmus test of where you are in your walk with Christ. How much sin does it take to bother you? Look right here and I'm almost finished. From the preacher in the pulpit today to the first time member, it takes a lot more to bother us than it ought to. We have become so desensitized, and it's, almost, it's easy to understand. We, we, you're immersed in it at the workplace every day. You have to deal with it, young people. You deal with it in the classroom every day. You're trying to live for God, and you've got classmates that even don't, don't even know if they're a boy or a girl. And we are just saturated and immersed with wickedness and ungodliness and unrighteousness every single day. And if we're not careful, we will slowly, subtly, but surely be sucked into that life and drift away from the Lord. When the fire of God falls, the radar go back up. The tuner of our heart is tuned to the frequency of heaven. And we begin to sense some things that we didn't sense or see before. So here's a good question. How much sin does it take to bother you? Now, I don't mean to be unkind, but if you don't know anything that I've been talking about this morning, it's a pretty good sign you've not experienced the fires of God's revival in quite some time. And you would be well advised to get in this altar this morning and pray the prayer of Elijah we find in verse 37. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are God 
and that you have turned not just our hearts or their heart, but that you have turned my heart back to you again. Would you bow in prayer with me, please? I don't know all the ways the Lord may have used this message in your life this morning, but I do know this, God's word wants to accomplish a great work in your heart. If you've never been saved, I'm going to encourage you in just a moment when we stand to sing to leave your seat and begin to step forward and tell this pastor, I want to be saved. We'd count it the privilege of all privileges to take a Bible and share with you how you can be saved. Perhaps you've been visiting this church and you want to come and begin your membership process. Come tell the pastor, I want to join Mount Pisgah. This altar is open. There's some issue in your life. Maybe you want to come and pray for someone else that just needs the fire of God to fall and move on their behalf. Father in heaven, in a way that only you can by your spirit, will you oversee this invitation for your honor and glory. And it is in Jesus' blessed name we make our prayer. Amen. Would you stand to your feet? We're all standing. Pastor Chad is going to be down front. Other staff members are here to receive you if he's speaking to someone else. As we begin to sing, you simply come in obedience as God leads you. Thanks for taking the time to listen to the preaching ministry podcast of Mount Pisgah Baptist Church. If you'd like additional information, please visit mtpisgah.cc.